Hi, I'm Greg, the creator of Opportunities. And I'm Polly, Princess of Prevention. And welcome to another edition of Totally Preventable. Hey there, Greg. Hey, Polly, how are you? Very good, thank you. That's good, that's good. I'm, I'm really excited today because our podcast guest is um, from the Women's Resource Center. And the reason, well, one of the reasons why I'm excited is because I was nominated from the Women's Resource Center to be one of the um, Rhode Island Coalition Against Domestic Violence, 10 men cohort um, about three years ago, right before COVID, I was that last, um, that last cohort. So I'm, I'm excited. We have uh, the executive director, Jessica Walsh, coming today. So that's pretty exciting. It is. Well, congratulations on being one of the 10 men. Thank you. Thank you. And I too, I'm excited to learn more about the Women's Resource Center. I mean, I know it's there, but I don't know that much about it. And mm-hmm. I'm happy to see how we can help here at the Prevention Coalition, but also as community members. Exactly. Exactly. I, um, you know, I, I just want to, I know one of the things I want to learn from this podcast is the, the different, like the different styles or forms of, of domestic violence. Even like when you see, you know, um, no, you get those donation mailers. It's always <laughs> the, the violence, violence, violence. But I, I'm pretty sure there's there's got to be other ways that domestic violence are prevalent in the lives of people. So absolutely really interested to see what she would have to say about that. Yep. Um, me as well. I know um, verbal abuse is um, something that's pretty predominant in our um, culture. Um, mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people take it for granted and um, maybe even don't believe it's real or um, think it's no big deal. So um, I am curious to hear what what she sees and what she can tell us about all the different forms of abuse and how, um, and how we can all help. I agree. I agree. I think it's huge. Now. I mean, you, you look on TV and there's, you know, these celebrity cases going on and, mm-hmm. you know, it's abuse. It's, it's everything that's on there. And um, I think it's very prevalent, very relative to what's going on right now. So yeah. Yeah. I would also think with COVID too, being stuck inside with um, mm. with an your abuser, good point, um, might have escalated things and made things worse, or just made it more difficult. So yeah, there was no escape, and then oh yeah, you tie that in with the you know the essential places, and one being a liquor store, you know, you, it's, yeah, it's, it could be a very slippery slope in in some situations. So. Yeah, I think it's a very good time to have, you know, Jessica on the Women's Resource Center. Absolutely. I'm looking forward to it. So without further ado, and today (laughs) with us on our totally preventable Newport County podcast, we have with us Executive Director of the Women's Resource Center, Ms. Jessica Walsh. Welcome, Jessica. Hi, thanks for having me. So Jessica, we are going to get right into it. What is the WRC? Tell us all about it. Tell our our, our nationally syndicated only plan. <laughs> tell, <laughs> tell all our listeners exactly what it is, uh, what WRC is, and, and the programs and services that are provided. 
Sure. So the Women's Resource Center is a domestic violence um, prevention and intervention organization. So uh, we provide services to those experiencing domestic violence and their families. Um, so that could be, uh, I think our name sometimes can be intimidating or misleading uh, because we're called the Women's Resource Center. We don't only serve women. We serve um men, we serve non-binary folks, we serve anyone who's experiencing domestic violence in their families. Um, those services include a lot of um, advocacy services. So we advocate uh, with law enforcement on behalf of victims. We advocate with the court system on behalf of victims. Um, we advocate within the Department of Human Services um, on behalf of victims. So we have a series of advocacy programs that really are helping uh, folks who've experienced domestic violence, access um, the protections that they need and access um, the services that they need. So um, that's a big part of what we do. Um, we also have hotlines. So we uh, are, we have a 24 hour hotline. So if folks are experiencing violence, they can give us a call. Um, the hotline is also available for uh, family members or colleagues or friends who might have a concern about someone. And they just, uh, oftentimes folks will call and just say, I'm, I have this friend, um, I'm worried, I'm not really sure if it's domestic violence. So it's important for our community to know that we're here for, to answer those questions too. We're really here to be a support. Um, we know that family and friends and colleagues actually know about the abuse typically before we do. Um, and so we're here to help support those folks um, in providing the support that the, the survivor and their family might need. So um, in addition, we have a, re um, a residential program that includes um, an emergency shelter as well as transitional housing. So um, folks will come into our emergency shelter. The average stay is about 90 days. It's longer than usual right now. That's that. That's the current. It's usually closer to thirty to sixty days. But with the housing crisis being what it is, folks are sort of in a holding pattern and shelter longer than typical. As we try to get them into transitional housing, um, and then from transitional housing, which folks are typically there for six months to two years, um, we then are working with them to get into permanent housing. So um, our residential program does a lot of advocacy and case management with clients uh, who need that kind of housing support. Uh, domestic violence is the leading cause of homelessness among women and children. So um, we have a lot of folks who come in um, that because they fled the abuser, they have no place to live. Um, and so we uh, provide that service. In addition, we have counseling. So we do counseling for adults, children, we do um, support groups. Our counselors specialize in domestic violence, which I think is important. Oftentimes we will refer, once folks are out of the crisis, sort of the immediate crisis, we might refer them to Newport Mental Health or another organization. Um, we really are um, focused on supporting folks through that crisis of domestic violence and then the healing process. So um, based on their needs, sometimes they stay with us and sometimes they get referred out. Um, we also have a very um, significant um, prevention programs. So we're the backbone agency for the Newport Health Equity Zone, which folks may have heard about. Um, and the, our goal with prevention is to prevent domestic violence before it starts. And no one is exactly sure how to do that. So we're working with the CDC and other very smart people to try to figure out how do you create healthy communities. So our commitment to the HES and being the backbone of the Health Equity Zone um, is related to research that shows that communities that are more connected 
and um, communities that are addressing um, the social determinants of health actually experience less domestic violence. So that is us in a nutshell. <laughs> that is quite the nutshell. <laughs> but it's amazing work, amazing work. One of the things that really stood out to me was um, how you're there for colleagues, friends, family. A lot of times you hear, you know, we can't really interfere or we can't really do anything until we hear from the actual victim. But there's there's people like you were saying, there's people that know about it before the organization knows about it. So it's great that that you provide that support. For sure. And we'll even get other professionals, honestly, who call and they say, I have this client. We're not, you know, and we can't talk about uh, specific clients, but we can give um, general like advice, feedback, guidance on um, um, some good approaches or like what the appropriate referrals would be. So, yeah, we're definitely um, we're at the end of the day, a fairly small organization and domestic violence is a big problem where it's not something we're going to be able to address alone. So we really want folks to know that like we're here to be a resource for the community, um, we center the work around survivors and we recognize that there's a lot of other folks who are interacting with those survivors that um, may need our um, support or expertise. Um, Jessica, could you define domestic violence for us? Domestic violence is a pattern of power and control within a relationship. So what does that mean? Um, it means that one partner is exerting um, power and control over another partner. Um, There are a whole lot of tactics that folks use to do that. Um, They typically fall into a few different categories. So um, there's physical abuse, which is the most probably well-known form of abuse. Um, There is verbal abuse, which is um, when um, a person who commits abuse might be using derogatory, demeaning, um, and controlling language um, with their uh, victim. Uh, there's economic abuse, which uh, is less known to folks, but it's uh, it's controlling finances. So that might either be uh, what we see sometimes is um, a victim not being allowed to work, not being allowed to go to school, not being allowed to have access to their own resources. Um, it could also be on the flip side, um, a victim who is basically bringing in all of the resources for the household. And there's a, there's an abusive partner who refuses to work, um, or might use the family's resources for gambling or drugs or something else. Right. And so there are a lot of ways that economic abuse sort of plays out, um, in a relationship. It's actually one of the leading reasons we hear from folk, from folks that they stay, um, in the abusive relationship is, the um, inability to have access to um, their own resources. So I think that's an important one to understand. Um, Sexual abuse, um, it's an interesting one because I think often folks don't associate, we associate sexual assault with strangers or, um, but in relationships, you know, in abusive relationships, um, if you can still have, uh, non-consensual sexual interactions. And that happens a lot as a way, as a means of control. Um, and all of them have sort of an emotional component. So emotional abuse, um, 
spans all the other forms of abuse. And it's sort of the trauma that comes along with being um, in that situation over time. Um, we hear from survivors that they begin to believe all of the stuff that's being said to them. So um, whether it's verbal, whether it's, you know, um, the control isolation, stuff like that, it just, they begin to really believe um, what the abuser is saying um, about reality. So there's the concept of gaslighting where an abuser will actually just tell the victim that their perception of reality is wrong. Um, and that accumulates over time um, for folks. So those are the main forms of abuse within sexual abuse too. There's something called reproductive coercion, which I think is important to understand. So it's, um, it's a newer sort of idea that's been explored in the research, but it's looking at how abusers will um, control whether or not a person, their victim gets pregnant. Um, so they might, they might not allow them to have birth, use birth control. People tracks their cycles, um, or they might force them to have an abortion that they don't want to have or whatever. So I think like the idea of reproductive coercion is important to know, um, particularly for medical, um, folks that is important to understand. And then there's spiritual abuse, which is talked about a little bit less, but for folks who are particularly spiritual, um, in a spiritual community, there are ways in which that spirituality is used by the abuser to control um, their victim, unfortunately. So it could be by um, forcing the victim to do things that go against their spiritual beliefs. And so therefore the victim may believe that they're going to be punished you know, by a higher power or whatever. And so that piece of it too is an important piece uh, for folks to understand, I think within faith communities in particular, because I think there's a lot of leadership that faith leaders can have and sort of identifying and seeing that and trying to support victims um, that are experiencing that. So those are the forms of abuse. Um, and all of it goes back to power and control. So it's tactics sort of falling into those big buckets that are used to um, exert power and control over a victim. So I think if you've never experienced it, it's hard for people to wrap their mind around it, but you, we might have a client who literally while they're in our office gets text messages 50 times in one hour, right? Like just like constant, constant monitoring of where are you? Where are you? Where are you? Um, it runs the gamut of terms of like what it really looks like um, for each situation. But I think the important thing to recognize is that it's intense. It's, um, it's a progression that happens over time. So sometimes folks don't see it coming until they're kind of pretty deep in it. Um, and this idea that it alters perception of reality is really important because I think as a community, sometimes we struggle to be patient. Uh, and understand where the victim or survivor is coming from. Why do they stay? Like those sorts of questions. And I think it's really important to understand that like one, the abuse isn't constant. Um, the controlling behaviors might be constant, but they're often understated and hard to identify at first. Um, and so the way the cycle of abuse works, um, there is a honeymoon phase where everything is great um, I think it's important for folks to know that abusers are often quite charming. They're also selectively violent. So 
they tend to not be violent with others. <laughs> um, they tend to not be controlling with others. So it can be hidden, you know? Um, and it takes, there's this like tension building phase and then there's an explosive incident. Um, and then apologies and back to the honeymoon phase. And what we know about that cycle is that the first time it happens, it could take literally months before the first explosive incident happens. And that explosive incident might be um, uh, verbal, uh, you know, it, it might not be physical um, for a long time. It might never get physical, quite frankly. Um, it really depends on the situation, but the cycle gets shorter. The, the, the typical pattern is that the cycle will get shorter and the explosive instance will get more violent progressively over time. Um, but the thing that I often tell folks is that person that a survivor fell in love with keeps showing back up, right? Like, so that charming, like honeymoon phase person keeps showing up. And so there's always this hope that this time it will be different, right? If I just do something differently this time, like it, I'll be able to keep that person here for a longer period of time. And so I think, you know, it's a, it's a, it's really hard to understand. And I think as friends and family, it can feel so frustrating to see someone going through this. Um, and I think the important thing to help us all have compassion is to remember that um, it's complicated. <laughs> um, it's you're, like, there's a, there's a part that, that, that a survivor loves there's often children involved. There's, I mean, it's just, it's a complicated scenario. And often the other last piece, and I'll stop rambling, is that the danger to victims increases by something like 85% when they leave. So mm. almost all domestic homicides occur after someone leaves, because really it's the ultimate loss of power and control, right? Somebody decided to leave. And so we also, a big part of what we do at the resource center is say like, we believe survivors know their abusers best. So if they come in and say, it's going to be very dangerous for me to leave, we believe them <laughs> um, because they're the one that is in that situation every day. Um, and so uh, we need to also understand that that's a, when they're, when folks are in that situation, they know how dangerous it's going to be for them to leave. And it takes time and planning um, to often to get out um, in, a, in a way that maintains safety. So that's who we are. And that is what domestic violence is. Wow. So <laughs> through that, you, you mentioned the the cycle you mentioned the honeymoon phase and, you, and the the key was that that person you fell in love with that charming person keeps showing up so i i would think that when that honeymoon phase or when that charming person shows up the the survivor really doesn't want people to know about the bad they just want to show up and highlight the good what are warning signs that people could look out for in, in abusive relationships Sure. So there's like some that are sort of when you're in the relationship, you might see, and there are some that as a bystander, you might see, right? Um, a big thing to know is that isolation is often a big part of abuse. And so if you're a colleague or a friend or a family member, and suddenly this person 
excuse me, you're seeing them less and less and less. Um, they're harder to get in touch with. There's always an excuse for why they can't um, hang out or, or do things that they would typically do. That's probably a red flag, you know, to someone outside the relationship. In the relationship, if um, what it often sounds like at first is, I just want you to be with me all the time. I just love you so much. Like, but it's still a version of isolation, right? It's like, that's how the, they're using manipulation to get at this isolation. Um, and so I think if you're in the relationship and someone is making efforts to have you be with them all the time, um, that could be a warning sign. I think one of the things to know, particularly for teenagers is that, and young people is that um, warning signs of abuse are often mistaken for signs of love um, in part because of how the media portrays um, relationships, right? But um, quick involvement, for example, is a big warning sign. So if suddenly you're together for a very brief period of time and they're saying they love you and they want to be with you all the time, like while that happens in Hollywood movies, in real life, it's probably <laughs> like I, I talk to young people, like just say goodbye. <laughs> like, it's like it's not a good sign. And I'm not trying to make light of it, but I think it's you can see how it's confusing, right? Because we have these like media portrayals of relationships um, and in, in reality, um, in most cases, that's, that's a sign, a warning sign to look out for, um, monitoring behaviors. So these to a person in the relationship might be what I mentioned, kind of consistent texting saying like, where are you? Who are you with? What are you doing? Um, externally, it might be that suddenly you're with a person that, you know, and they're constantly checking their phone and you can tell that they are anxious if they can't respond right away. Um, so those are things to look out for. Those are some warning signs. Um, the other piece to know is that there's a very disturbing link between animal abuse and domestic violence. So um, a warning sign both internally um, and to anybody observing is that if someone uh, abuses animals um, in any way, you would it should be a red flag for how they treat their romantic partners. It isn't necessarily always true, but it, it, there's a, there's a strong link there. Um, so those are some of the things I can that you know, there's, there's a whole long list of red flags. I mm -hmm. think um, it, as things progress um, external to the relationship, if somebody is changing how they dress, changing how they present themselves and there doesn't seem to be a reason for it, um, there's controlling behaviors around um, not sometimes it's because the abuser is saying, I don't want anyone to see your legs, but me, I don't want anybody to see certain parts of your body, but me, it could be that there's bruises or things that folks are trying to cover and hide. And so I think looking for those kind of um, really a, what it for the external folks, right. It's these sort of inexplicable changes of behavior Um and what I always tell people as a bystander is like, trust your gut. So if you, you know, this person, you've known them for a while, if something just seems off, um, it's worth checking in. Um, because what is helpful for the bystander to understand is that this is a process that the, the victim is going through. So they may not recognize it as abuse yet. Um, they might not see it as a problem. They might see it as a problem, but feel because of the um, verbal and emotional abuse, like 
not be able to name it, or they might be questioning their own reality, their own object, not trusting their own observation or their own, you know, belief. And so um, what we hear a lot from folks is that maybe the first time somebody reaches out, they'll deny everything and say, oh, no, everything's fine. He's great. Or she's great. Whatever. It's perfect. Um, But often it is knowing that that person reached out, like that'll be the person they reach out to when they're finally ready. Right. And so that's what, that's the, where bystanders play a really important role. It's just saying like, just knowing that you see it um, and that you're there to kind of validate that what they're experiencing isn't, isn't okay. Um, They may be defensive and, and, and be in denial at first, but um, we do know that it matters in the long run. Um, that folks know that there are supportive friends and colleagues and neighbors and family members um, who ultimately um, they can reach out to when it's time. Thank you. That's that's important because um, I think a lot of people struggle with um, when should I step in? Should I just mind my own business? Um, you know, oh, they're not going to want my help. So it's important to reach out. Um, yeah, and I think the important, just to say, like, I think one of the things is that it's a fine line. And I just want to acknowledge that, right. That like, if people go in too hard, saying like you have to leave, right. Like we know it takes the average of seven times for somebody to leave. If you go in with, you have to leave, you have to get out. Oftentimes that will just completely shut you out. And so it is this kind of balance of saying like, Oh, I'm seeing this. Are you okay? Like that doesn't seem right to me or, um, that makes me uncomfortable, like trying to keep it on how you're, what you're seeing and like what you're feeling about it to plant the seed with them that you're there and you're willing to talk without really getting into vilifying the abuser. Because often that first time they aren't ready to hear that, right? Like they're still trying to figure stuff out for themselves. And so I, just to your point, try, you know, I just want to acknowledge that it is, it's, it's tricky. Um, and, 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 and it's, and I think that kind of prevents people from saying anything at all. Um, so one of the things we always talk to folks about is like, focus on how, what you're seeing, focus on how it makes you feel that like, Oh, if that were me, I'd be upset. If that were me, you know, it's trying to help plant sort of an alternative reality, right. To say like, if that were happening to me, I would be upset. Um, or I feel uncomfortable then, Um, I don't know. I feel like we've all been in a situation, maybe not, but where, you know, somebody you're, you're out or you're in a social setting and like how two partners talk to each other. One part, like it just makes you feel uncomfortable. Like it's awkward, but just to be like afterward checking in and saying, Hey, are you okay? Like I felt uncomfortable with how they were talking to you. And I just want to make sure that you're okay. That isn't neat. That's just sort of leaving the um, potential abuser out of it. It's really just saying like, I want to make sure you're okay. And I'm going to tell you how I feel. Um, so that can be a way to help folks feel more confident mm-hmm. um, in, in um, starting the conversation. Great. Thank you. Um, so a lot of times there's children involved in domestic violence. Can you tell us how, um, children are impacted in situations like this? Sure. So it's very traumatic for kids to um, witness violence and to know it happened. There's actually interesting and unfortunate um, research that it's actually more traumatizing for kids to know the abuse is happening and not see it. 
because their imaginations will like, like we know kids have a very active imagination, right? Like that's where they are developmentally. And so often actually kids who overhear, but aren't seeing it, um, will actually have, um, more, uh, trauma response, you know, it's, so it's, 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 none of it's good, (laughs) but it's just interesting that I think sometimes people think, well, they didn't see it. Like, but actually if they hear it, if they suspect it's happening, if they know it's happening, it's all lumped into how kids get impacted, right? Like kids are deeply, deeply perceptive. Um, I often say that my daughter, like, knows what's going on with me before I do sometimes just because they're so like, they're so attuned. Right. Right. So like they're to, to you. And so I think that's important to remember. So, um, kids who witness violence, um, or grow up in homes that have violent, that, um, have domestic violence occurring, um, are far more likely to, um, become a victim or abuser later in life. So like this, it's a, we talk about the cycle of violence kind of within the relationship, but there's also a generational cycle of violence. Um, so in, in part because um, it's learned behavior. So this isn't sort of innate, right? It's a learned behavior um, for how relationships work um, and how people are, are supposed to, or just do behave in relationships. So um, that's important to understand. So there's a, there's a um, generational cycle that can happen. It doesn't necessarily happen. It can be interrupted, right? Um, And that's why our services are available um, to work with kids um, to process their trauma, to process what they've witnessed or what they've overheard um, and really try to help them come up um, to heal and to understand kind of what healthy relationships look like. Um, So I think the important thing to remember is that um, when there are kids involved, it's even more complicated. <laughs> like, like, so there's like this, so the relationship itself is complicated. And then you have kids that are involved and we all want to help get those kids out of there, unfortunately. Um, and I totally understand why it happens, but oftentimes what happens is the the, the victim is put in a position of by if DHS, if um, DCYF is contacted because witnessing violence is reportable um, under mandatory reporting. So witnessing violence um, is something that if you know it is occurring um, as mandatory reporters, we have to report it. Um, the system isn't built for the nuance of domestic violence. And so um, you have um unfortunate situations where it's, you know, um, victims are experiencing abuse and being threatened to have their kids taken away. Like it's, 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 um, and you want the kids safe too. So I'm not watering any of it down. I'm just trying to illustrate that it's really complex, right? Like it's really complex. It's really complicated. Um, the, and, and sort of, we really need to be thinking about how do we keep the kids safe? Um, how do we help the mother or the parent, sorry, who's experiencing abuse, like get, get to safety um, and whenever possible, keep those families together, right. Um, So that they can heal and grow together. Um, So I think that's, um, it's a very complicated um, issue. And I, my heart always goes out to the kids because they're just trying to, they're thrown into an adult situation 
right? Like they're thrown into something that is very adult. And even if they're not seeing it, if they're hearing it, if they know it happens. Um, so there's a reason that it's considered the, the, um, uh, the ACEs, uh, adverse childhood experiences that, um, the more adverse childhood experiences a person experiences, the worse their health outcomes are for the rest of their life. And domestic violence is one of them. So witnessing violence is one of the ACEs. It just has super long-term impacts, um, on the health and well-being of children who witness violence. Wow. Now a little off topic, but still on topic, you know, when I'm talking to friends and family and whenever we talk about um, domestic violence, it's always pictured, you know, that couple is always man, woman, man, woman, man, woman. Um, do you think you can give just a, a brief synopsis, just a, a over an overlook, uh, you know, the 30,000 feet view of what domestic violence case numbers look like in the LGBTQ plus community? Sure, for sure. So I think one thing to recognize is that although approximately 85% of um, the, the research indicates that approximately 85% of abusers are male um, abusing a female, um, that isn't always the case, right? So you have females who um, abuse male partners and then you um, and do have um, male partners abusing male partners, female partners abusing female partners, and um, non-binary folks experiencing and perpetrating abuse, right? And so um, domestic violence is actually, the LGBTQ community is at a higher risk for domestic violence. Um, so the rates are um, higher, you know, proportionately. Um, to uh, those couples that identify as hetero, heterosexual um, and cisgendered. So um, it's definitely an area that we need to pay attention to. And the other unfortunate reality is that LGBTQ victims often experience barriers and poor treatment in their interactions with law enforcement, with the court system, with other service providers. And so there is the increased risk and experience of domestic violence, intimate partner violence. And that is combined with um, additional barriers to accessing the services and the supports and the protections that they need. So um, it's definitely an area that we're paying close attention to. So we recently were um, designated as a safe zone um, by Blue Cross Blue Shield, uh, which indicates that we have certain policies and practices in place to be supportive and inclusive of LGBTQIA survivors that come to us for services. Um, and for us, that's really the beginning of the journey, right? We have to continue to um, do better in terms of how we are providing services to um, the LGBTQIA community locally. So it's hard to have local numbers because, you know, we serve 1,200 people say annually um, across all Newport and Bristol counties. Um, the actual proportion of that number that identify or disclose to us, they don't have to tell us if they identify as LGBTQ. So um, the numbers are relatively low. Um, the important thing to take away is that proportionately the risk is higher um, for that, for folks in that community. Thank you. 
You're all wrapped up in that. I'm not prepared for the next question. <laughs> so um, in most of our interviews, there's always stigma involved, whether it's social um, social media concerns, um, substance use, um, um, anything, and any kind of interview we've done lately, there's always some stigma involved. Um, I'm sure there's stigma involved in domestic abuse. Um, could you tell us a little bit about what kind of stigma they face and how people might be able to help or combat that? Sure. I think um, there's the general, I sort of touched on it briefly already, but the idea, one of the pieces that folks, like, why do they stay? There's a lot of victim blaming. I don't know if that's a stigma per se, but it's like the idea that the victim must have done something either to deserve it or because they're not leaving right away, they're, it's somehow their fault that they're, you know, that they're saying that they're experiencing that situation. So um, to me, victim blaming is sort of a, is the stigma of just not being believed, right? Mm -hmm. That you're, that what you're saying isn't true or that you don't know your own experience or you don't know your own, um, your own, um, the dangers associated, for example, with your, um, with your abuser. So, um, I think that's really one of the leading stigmas. I think male victims face particular stigmas around folks not believing that, men can be the victims of domestic violence. And so I think um, that is something that we just need to combat by saying like, absolutely, you know, folks who identify as male definitely can be victims. I think um, there are some stigmas, stigmas associated with LGBTQ, as I mentioned. So folks like not valuing, not identifying those relationships as somehow valid and therefore like, they can't possibly be experiencing domestic violence or intimate partner violence, right? There's also a stigma with the issue that somehow it happens to poor folks or folks from certain communities, right? Like domestic violence impacts across all socioeconomic um, uh, groups. It impacts across all um, race and ethnic backgrounds, it, it, you know, age, it really, knows no bounds in that way. And I think that's a stigma associated more to the issue. But what it means is you might have a person come in who um, is convinced they can't possibly be a victim or the people in their life think they can't be a victim because they are wealthy or because they come from a certain like background. Um, So I think that's important to know too, that it's, this is an issue that unfortunately can impact anyone, Mm. just anyone, (laughs) Um, anyone who finds themselves in an intimate relationship, but also keep in mind that domestic violence can encompass elder abuse, right? So it can be um, often elders are abused by grown children um, in their lives. So uh, it can also be family members um, that are not, you're not in an intimate relationship with, but it could be between two adult family members, right? And so it can happen to anyone. And I think um, we all can, I think the simplest thing we can all do when it comes to battling stigma is just be a person who believes survivors, like believe that they know their experience, believe that what they're saying is true. Um, there's a lot of 
false narrative around people like playing the system or like making things up to get what they need. What I can tell you doing this work every day is that this is such a miserable, heartbreaking experience. Um, folks don't make it up. <laughs> like the, if like they just don't make it up. And if if that happens, it's like, you know, I can't imagine. It's just such a minuscule um, number of cases. So the odds are any person that we as individuals run into who are experiencing this, like they are telling their truth. It is their truth. And you can be help counter stigma by simply believing them and saying, how can I help? Wow. Now you've, you kind of touched on this, but just in this interview, just in this podcast, I mean, you've dropped some real heavy stuff, some real heavy information, some, some eye-opening things. How, you know, being the, the, the director of this organization, how do you not take this job home with you? How do you, how do you deal with it all? Yeah. So one, I think the reality is there's pieces of it that you almost inevitably take home, right? Like you try not, you try really hard not to, but there are certain cases, you know, even in just doing this interview, I remember there, there were cases coming up for me that I was like, I remember sitting in the lobby when I was barely just starting. And I remember survivor stories that were told to me, like, 10 years ago or 15 years ago. Like there are certain cases and stories that just stay with you. Um, and I think that's part of the reality. So secondary trauma is a reality in our field. So that is when folks are being exposed to other people's trauma all the time mm -hmm. and they end up like internalizing that um, and needing to deal with it. So we work with our client, we work with our staff a lot on um, understanding what secondary trauma is. Um, understanding that it's something we all need to be aware of. Um, and we do offer, um, you know, we, we have internal supervision so that we have, we have clinicians on staff who can help folks process what they're hearing. Um, we encourage people to support each other and, and process through a lot of how you don't take it home is if you take the time before you leave work that day to process with your colleagues, like, this is what I heard today and it's bothering me and like, just kind of talk it through. Um, so a lot of that is just about making the space um, for folks to be able to process what they need to process so that they can kind of leave it at work and um, come back to it the next day. I think another piece that, Unfortunately, we all doing the work understand that this is the, this is a long haul that we can go home and that tomorrow there are going to be more cases and there are going to be more folks who need help. And tomorrow there are going to be like more um, issues that need to be tackled. Right. And so you have like what we work with, with our staff on is like, you have to figure out how to take care of yourself. Like we talked a ton about self-care we have all we do we host like virtual um yoga for staff once a week we have um the employee assistance program that that we offer um our employees we um have a meditation and yoga app that we pay for all um staff to have access to um we just spend a lot of time um we reimburse for example for mental health co-pays so that like if people need to go to count like therapy their copay isn't the thing that prevents them from being able to do that. And so we really do. Um, it's about training around boundaries, but at the end of the day, it's mostly about how do we help 
staff process what they're hearing and take and create enough space so that they can take care of themselves. Um, we are always telling people to take vacation. <laughs> that sort of thing. We just like take a break. Cause you, the thing is, it will always be here. Mm-hmm. I mean, domestic violence is preventable. And I, having been in prevention for 16 of my years with the organization, I 100% know that to be true. We can prevent it. It's probably not going to happen in my lifetime. And so like with that knowledge, we all have to learn to pace ourselves um, to take care of ourselves so we don't burn out and have, and leave the field basically. So it's a lot. Yeah. I am. important it's important Self-care. It, it definitely is it's it's hard to know that you're working on a project though that you might not see the end result to that you're working on yeah that's a control freak in me doesn't like that <laughs> it, i know it's weird it's like its own kind of faith right like you just have to believe that that's where we're going but yeah. in the short term I, we talk a lot about it being a both and like we are absolutely committed to prevention. We absolutely believe that this is a preventable problem in the long term, in the short term. Like, so that's, you know, that's the one. And in the short term, we are here to provide services for the folks who, are, who continue to experience the problem while we work on um, longer term solutions. So um, you are the um, recently new executive director to WRC. So can you tell us maybe some um, challenges that you faced and maybe some of the things that you like the most in your position? Sure. Yeah. So I, um, I was the interim director for a year and I've been the executive director for just about two years. Um, but obviously without knowing it was sort of, I sort of ended up as the interim six months before COVID hit. So um, I would say learning how to do the job while also being responsible to lead the organization through a pandemic um, was probably, excuse me, the single biggest challenge, right? It's just like, I was felt like I was still learning what I was doing. And then all of a sudden I had to figure out how to, we had, we were like, Oh, we have to provide all of our services remotely. We have to like, we have to keep shelter open, but how do we keep our staff safe? Um, you know, just sort of constantly, um, it was learning how to do a job that was changing, like in the middle of learning how to do it. Um, and so I think that has been like, um, that has been pretty challenging. I think we've also been experiencing, um, funding cuts. Uh, so it's really hard to sort of, uh, recognize that we're actually, I think like many human services organizations, we've been sort of chronically underinvested in, and therefore we are chronically understaffed and then to have additional funding cuts. Right. And so to sort of be in the position of seeing staff, knowing we need more help, like just knowing all of these things, but feeling a bit like there's only like you can do everything that in your power to do, but the budget feels like it's the budget and the funding cuts are out of our control. And, and so I think um, it's challenging to kind of know what the organization needs and what the community by extension, what the community needs um, of us and not be able to do all those things because we have all of these limitations. Um, 
one of the things I think I've enjoyed is really sort of, I was in prevention. I've been with the organization for um, a long time. I don't know, 18 and a half years or something. Um, but for 16 of those years, I was in prevention. So I think it's been really nice to begin to sort of connect the dots between prevention and intervention. And how do we, like, there's so much overlap that for a long time, they were sort of siloed within the organization. So that's been really nice to kind of help bring those pieces together. Um, And I've enjoyed really, you know, we've been doing some restructuring and stuff, and I've just enjoyed seeing staff grow into their leadership. So I think that's been something that I find very fulfilling is sort of staff who, um, been with us for a while and sort of we're able to we were able to figure out ways to provide leadership opportunity and sort of seeing folks um, develop and grow into leadership is an exciting part for me and I think it's going to make for a more sustainable organization um, in the long run it's also just an it's a challenging but exciting time to be leading a domestic violence agency because there's a lot that the movement sort of nationally as a whole is sort of coming to terms with. And I think, you know, there's much more focus on racial equity. There's more focus on intersectionality and inclusion. And so like our, a lot of our practices kind of have to change. And so for me, that's an, that's exciting. I I like to kind of problem solve in that, in that way. Um, And it's also challenging because it feels like it's never fast enough and there's never quite enough resources um, to to do what, what you'd like to do. Well, Jessica, I mean, you've opened our eyes to so much, given us so much information that that we all need to hear, especially with the, in these times. I I just can't even imagine what you go through on a on a daily basis, what your staff goes through, and the stories that you hear, and the people that you help. I, I'm sure that everyone's very, very grateful for the uh, for the WRC for the Women's Resource Center. What would you like? others to know about how they can help? Yeah, um, I love this question because I think it's, like I said, I think it's a, this is an issue that's all hands on deck. Um, I think particularly in a time where we continue to see an increased level of social isolation across the board than pre-pandemic times. Like people are getting out there, it's getting a little bit more normal, but you still have a lot of variation in terms of um, how engaged folks are kind of out in the world. those folks immediately around people have a lot of, I think, influence. And so if you, it could be a neighbor, it could be a friend, it could be a colleague. Like, I think it's really looking for those warning signs. Honestly, I don't even think you have to look for them. I think it's allowing yourself to see them, right? Like, I think we all kind of get a gut about it sometimes. Like, oh, that doesn't feel right. Or what? I wonder if that person's okay. Um, Allow yourself. We block it out, I think, because we don't, know if it's our place or we're not sure what to do. So I think it's about allowing yourself to see some warning signs, allowing and acknowledging if you're having a reaction or you're feeling uncomfortable about something and then finding a way to, um, to intervene or offer support. Um, so Honestly, that I think know what we do. So our website has a lot of information on it. Um, it's helpful to just kind of know what the resources are in the community so that if you do have to reach out and they say, oh, I do need help, like you can say, oh, call the Women's Resource Center. Or, um, <laughs> these, these are the services that they have. So I think because we know, like we're here, but we know that friends, family, and colleague, colleagues are going to know first, like 
having folks understand our services is, um, is really important. One thing I would say is I once was in an airport and I just give this story because I think I, I was in an airport and I observed a, um, two people who are clearly in a relationship and he was, in my opinion, being abusive verbally. And I was super uncomfortable. Like I was watching it happen. Perfect strangers. I don't know them. And, and this is what I do for a living. I just want to acknowledge this, right? Like, so I should know what to do, right? right? <laughs> like, so I'm sharing the story to help normalize for everyone that this is like an uncomfortable, it, you know, it's how our society treats relationships. We think of them as a private thing. Mm-hmm. So I'm sitting there and I'm seeing it happen. I'm super uncomfortable. I'm not sure what to do. I was also worried that if I intervened, it would be worse for her um, when I wasn't there, right? So I just give this as an example. I waited until he left. He went to the bathroom or something. And I walked over to her and I just said, are you okay? And she said, I'm fine. Um, and I said, if you're not, I'm sitting over there. That, and that was it. Now, she didn't talk to me. We waited for the plane. The plane was delayed, of course. So we're just sitting there forever. Um, when she got on the plane ahead of me, like, you know, she was called to board. She turned around and mouthed thank you before she got on the plane. Wow. So she wow. declined any support, right? But simply by saying, like, I saw that, right? Like me just saying, like, are you okay? Like it sent a message. I'm seeing this. It's not okay. Right. Um, and so I share that story to say we never know the impact we're gonna have. And it might seem at first like it didn't matter. Um but simply you're acknowledging that you're seeing something that isn't right can be validating and supportive, right? To folks who are having that experience. And I think that's an important thing to remember. Thank you. Um, Is there any information that you can share to people listening on how to reach out to you and your organization? Um, We, have a website, as I mentioned, so wrcnbc.org. Um, um, we have, there's a 24-hour hotline. It is statewide, but folks will get referred to us if they if they are local and they need our support. Is 1-800-494-8100. They can always call our office um, during business hours. Uh, that's a local number, 846-5263. And we are open 830 to 430, Monday through Friday. Uh, we're also on Facebook and Um, those sorts of social media outlets. Also, if you are in a situation and you cannot pick up the phone to call, um, the statewide hotline has a texting option. Um, It's a a chat option. So um, if you go to ricadv.org, there's a way to text for support right on that website. So that's important for folks. It's not texting, sorry, message, message. Um, instant message, the helpline. Um, we do recognize that particularly if you're, we were noticing during COVID people were actually so close to their abuser all the time. It was hard to reach out mm-hmm. verbally. Um, so those are the ways to reach us. All right. And just one thing that we always like to add uh, to let the public know, are these services available in multiple languages, your like website, your hotline? Yeah, so our website at the top, um, there's a button you can hit and it will translate the entire website into any number of languages. Um, our 
we have bilingual staff who are able to provide services in um, Spanish and English and um, Arabic. So those are three languages we have in house. However, we will get a translator for any, like if people need our help and we don't have a staff person who talks the language, um, we have access to a language line, we have other, we have interpreters. So um, it's important for folks to know that they should reach out and if we'll, we will figure it out. Excellent. Great. Thank you, Jessica. This has been um, a very informative um, podcast interview. I learned a lot about WRC. I'm very thankful that you guys are there for our county. Thank yeah, you thanks for much. having me. Yeah, thanks. It was a lot of fun. Um, I look forward to hearing it. All right. <laughs>